war for resources or territory. This is war for the existence of Ukrainian people. It's not even just independence, because what Putin is claiming is that Ukrainians don't exist as a nation. A reminder that this episode, as well as our others, represents the thoughts and opinions of the person being interviewed, but does not necessarily reflect those of the Seeking Refuge podcast. Our goal as a podcast is to highlight and uplift the stories, thoughts, and opinions of refugees. Hey everyone, I'm with Andre, who is a writer based in Chicago, and he agreed to be on our podcast today. He is a writer from Ukraine, and today he is just here to talk about his experience. So Andre, um, I'll let you take it from here. Would you just be willing to give us a quick introduction to your background and just tell us a bit about your life story? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so my name is Andre, and I come from a very peculiar town. Uh, right by the Carpathian Mountains, uh, which is called Chernitsy. And uh, that is, of course, important because everything that I write about today, in one way or another, ties back to my experience in that hometown and uh, what has happened to me overall in Ukraine. This uh, is a very, very peculiar place, Chernivtsi. It has been the center of Jewish culture, Ukrainian culture. There's uh, an enormous uh, history of um, Romanian uh, legacy there, of Austrian legacy. And uh, it is one of the most unique places in Eastern Europe, I would say. It is also a very, very bizarre place where the things that have happened just in my lifetime um, <laughs> already certainly enough to write a book about, which is why I probably write. It certainly has been extremely eventful living there. When I was a child, one of the most significant books, and I, I love talking about books uh, a lot because right now I work in book printing, uh, so that in hindsight, that is, books are things that shape my life in one way or another as well. Uh, one of the most significant books that I have ever encountered as a child was uh, a book on Egyptology, actually. The thing about it is I recently actually found this book in a local shop here in Chicago, but it's the same book, but just in English now, uh, which is quite phenomenal to me. And, and I really recommend anybody who's curious to experience childhood wonder to explore these ology series overall. They're very good. And the reason why this book is significant, it has really shaped my uh, one of my earliest obsessions, which is the obsession with history. And initially, this was, of course, history of North Africa and the Middle East. Um, and then I started exploring the history of my hometown uh, way more. And one of the very peculiar aspects of my hometown is that 
it used to be a center of Jewish culture. And I knew that as a child, but it was very bizarre to me that very, very, very few signs of that remained. And so I was trying to find out why, and it turned out that that would mainly have to do with the Holocaust and with the my uh, and also of course with the mass migration of Jewish people from USSR as well, but more so with what happened during the Second World War, and that has actually brought me to another book in my life. The significance of this next book, which is called The Lost Hearth, or Zahublana Arfa in Ukrainian, is that until I was age of 14, 15, I, I didn't really express myself emotionally all that much. But this book... And, and especially not a single poem has ever been so significant as any of the ones that I read in this book. But these poems have been so powerful that they've actually made me weep. Uh, they've uh, uh, touched me in the deepest possible way. And that is because of very simple descriptions of what has been happening during the life of the people that have wrote those poems. I would have never thought that I'll be writing about anything similar in my life, which in a devastating twist of fate, I am forced to write about now. And I went on with the knowledge of the Holocaust further on in my life and started studying history in a Ukrainian university. And I met actually a professor that teaches here in Chicago, but he was um, invited for a series of lectures in Ukraine. And uh, as a matter of fact, um, I, I was not even supposed to be in his uh, course. It just so happened that I stumbled upon it, and I actually didn't even get any credits for it. It just, um, because I think it was either PhD or a master's course, and I was still an undergrad. <laughs> it was actually my first year. And uh, one of the things that the professor kept mentioning to many of the students, including me, is that there are great uh, opportunities for education here in Chicago which I, of course, dismissed initially because I never thought I would end up here. It was another twist of fate that brought me to Chicago in a very, very unexpe unexpected way. The stars, I guess, just aligned in such a fashion that I've been blown here. Uh, and um, it, it really has been one of the most drastic changes in my life as well. Taking it back to you know, the time of what was happening in Ukraine and what has been the most drastic event that has shaped my life, that would most likely be the Revolution of Dignity. The Revolution of Dignity or the Euromaidan or Maidan, right? Or some people call it the European Rebellion or uh, there's... there's uh, dozens of name for it. I prefer the Revolution of Dignity because 
that one is most meaningful for me because that is what we fought for um, at the end. And one of the most bizarre and peculiar things about the revolution of dignity is just the matter of the fact that in many ways, what was a distant political opinion or what was, you know, a dream, what was a certain aspect of being hopeful about the future immediately became existential during the year Maidan or the revolution of dignity. And it has became existential once the first shots were fired at the students that were fighting for a better day. And as soon as that happened, we, we knew that there is no way back. Before the shots were fired, the revolution was about truly gaining this sensation of dignity, right? Europe, for most Ukrainians, has been a pretty abstract notion, actually, because not that many Ukrainians have been to Western Europe at the time. Not that many Ukrainians have uh, wandered around at all. But we, we knew of Europe. It was close by, and it seemed like this completely different world, a transparent society that is actually free, that is not held back by these archaic Soviet bureaucratic notions um, that is not bound down by this absolute monotonous, gray, absurdist, uh, colonial past that Ukraine has inherited. Uh, it, it it was seemed free, um, and uh, in, in many ways, European society has a way greater um, liberty than Ukraine had prior to the revolution, of course. But in, in many ways, Europe was this ideal. Uh, it was a better society that Ukraine was striving for. Uh, even although most Ukrainians haven't really at the time been to Europe. Uh, and they were just exhausted of the level of corruption, the violence that the dictatorial regime has uh, been expressing, and the lack of agency. People were exhausted from not having any sort of sensation of power in their life. People were exhausted from everything, um, from, from the whole political system that was beating them down. And this was particularly true for my generation because we were born and raised in a Ukraine that was meant to be independent. All right, it was no longer a part of the USSR it was no longer in, in the shackles of any of the empires. It was a free society on paper. And we were determined to make it such in, in, in the most absolute way possible. And once Yanukovych, who was at the time the dictator in Ukraine, refused to integrate with Europe, that was the last 
the last drop, we couldn't take it anymore because integration, although slow with Europe, meant that maybe in the following decades, there is going to be a point when things can slowly and gradually change and actually get better. Actually, I don't know why we felt that way, because it was, in hindsight, very obvious that Yanukovych as a dictator would never allow that. If you would see political banners around the time of Yanukovych, they indeed were, uh, they were extremely Orwellian. It's just this massive face of Yanukovych, who's a massive guy, and next to it, it just usually said one word, stability. And stability is not something that Ukrainians wanted all that much at the time, I feel, because, yes, that could have been a slogan in the 90s when there was true chaos, but in the 2000s and following that, people felt that stability would mean stagnation because that is the state that was the state of Ukrainian politics at the time and would mean corruption and would mean uh, that lack of agency that I expressed previously. So eventually students started coming out and started fighting for a better day. And there was this transition from politics just being politics talking points just being talking points and uh you know our our perceptions of the world being a mundane aspect of life to all of that shifting in into an existential direction right immediately our life became a life of struggle but it felt like a righteous struggle and then people started to get shot and then we understood that this was an existential struggle in a very very different way we understood that oh we can't just protest to you know change this dictator for another we can't just protest to maybe let him sign another deal with europe and then reject it again we, we can't fight for an illusion of change. It has to be actual radical change reform. It, it, it has to be a revolution now. And then I saw the greatest hope turn into the most deep despair, especially as after the revolution, the annexation of Crimea has happened, which was very personal for me and for millions of Ukrainians, of course, because that has been a place where, you know, we, we were all deeply connected to. I used to spend summers with my family there. It was always a very special Ukrainian place. Um, of course, you know, we, we've always recognized that it's also an existential space for the Crimean Tatar people, and we have respected that, and still do, and always will, because they have rights uh, to a lot of that land, and uh, we believe that their rights should not be infringed on, and if Ukraine 
hopefully will gain Crimea back, that we restore their parliament and we restore their rights as well. One of the very bizarre things about the revolution was actually the fact that in many families, the very fact that people were a part of it was a little bit hidden occasionally. For example, me and my brother were both at the same place at the same time during the revolution. It was absurd because I I started to tell my brother, you know, I never told you this, but because it was a pretty dangerous place to be in, but I was uh, in front of like the city hall and, you know, all this. And we were trying to depose the mayor and stuff like that. And uh, he was there as well. And we would not want to tell each other that because, of course, it was a very dangerous time and place to be in. And we didn't want our parents know that so um that's how me and my eldest brother figured out that actually you're in there together but life has really radically changed in ukraine after initially the annexation and then the war life during wartime is an unbelievably bizarre experience it is horrifying absolutely yes but there is also an underlying desire for normality because most of the people could not escape the war. It's your life. You live in a state of war, even, even if you were not a soldier, although, of course, that, that is a completely different level of interaction. It's direct danger, and you, as a soldier, would, would have to be... Uh, you know, in, in a completely different space than the rest of the population. But still, there there is this sensation of war all throughout the country once it is going on. There's this angst, there's the dread, there's the sensation that you don't know if the worst can happen, when the worst can happen. And it was really absolutely terrifying to me to experience that in the first couple years and that has certainly shaped everything about me and i feel that even the war when it was limited to donbass and to the east of ukraine that i i feel that even then it was a deep scar for all ukrainians but in february of last year, when the full-scale invasion started, any illusion of safety has instantaneously disappeared just in, in an instant. Knowing that Kyiv, the Ukrainian capital, might fall was one of the most dreadful things that I could even think about. But even more so than that, the fact that my family was in immediate danger, they could die, was, or that they could live under Russian occupation was, was absolutely outrageous to me. And my father, who was actually supposed to be leaving Ukraine on the day of the invasion, 
he was supposed to be leaving to get a job here as a truck driver, as he usually does seasonally. He was actually passing by his hometown a few minutes before the invasion started. And as he was passing through it, he was able to witness the first rockets land and he saw these dark columns of smoke rising from where he grew up and he immediately knew that he had to get off the bus that he was on and and immediately get home as soon as possible he actually had to bribe a train conductor essentially in order to stand the whole route back to um, where my family was and to get them out of there. And this all was taking hours, I mean, and then days waiting at the border and we didn't know what could possibly happen. The most terrifying thing that has ever happened in my life is just knowing that my family was in danger and that initial experience of just not being there physically and knowing that I could do only so much. The thing that I had to focus on at the time was just finding places for them to stay at and figuring out how they can actually live abroad and I, I was able to figure that out for the most part for some time and they were lucky enough to be able to escape, especially my father because actually the airport that he was supposed to be taking a plane at, that airport was bombed too. So it's, it's decisions like that that can literally be a life in every decision during wartime, right now in Ukraine can be a life and or death decision, especially with how frequent the air raids and the rocket attacks are. It is incomprehensible, I think, to people that live in countries that are not experiencing war and countries of peace to, to feel that because the very knowledge that you can be bombed and that you can die at any moment, at any place, is the most that I can possibly think about. And that is the reality of all Ukrainians right now. And that is the greatest difference between what is happening now from what was happening when I was in Ukraine, because this is essentially the same war in many ways, but the stakes are way higher and there is this completely new level of terror because back in 2014 and, you know, all the way on to 2021, there was no feeling that you can die at any second. At the very least, there was the sensation that if the worst case scenario happens, then because bombs were not a 
part of our daily lives. So we, we thought that we would at least have hours, you know, to fight back or evacuate or to think of something. And now it is in the span of minutes, sometimes even less than that, because you can't always predict where a bomb will land. There's not always a siren. So, and, and just recently, you know, multiple um, buildings with hundreds of people in them, just regular civilian buildings were bombed. And that happens on the regular. And the terror which people are experiencing in occupied territories and, and anywhere near the front line is just unimaginable. I mean, the, there's, there's torture change. There's torture chambers, there's people and children being deported, being crucified. there's museums being raided, which is also painful. The loss of human life is devastating as is, but then seeing your culture being stolen and everything that is meaningful to you being taken away, it's exactly what the... Jewish poets from the book that I found as a kid writing about. And it's not something that I ever thought that I could experience or relate to, but it is what is happening. That is the reality of our existence. And the very fact that this is not just a war for resources or territory. This is war for the existence of Ukrainian people. It's not even just independence because what Putin is claiming is that Ukrainians don't exist as a nation. We don't exist as a people, which means that he can do whatever he wants from his perspective. It's essentially one of the first steps to that, that that is always the first step of a genocide and he's conducting a genocide and he knows what he's doing if you look at any place anywhere in time the first things that dictators do they dehumanize people and that is the first thing that he did russians are using these ethnic slurs to to talk about us one of them is for example that is the most common use use slur and it, it, it's humanizing and, and and even beyond that it's it's not just on a military level the, the official strategy of the Russian Federation the the official politics are that Ukrainians don't exist as a nation that's how they're justifying this genocide. That's how they're justifying this war, this occupation. And I, I can't imagine anything more terrifying than that, any from anything more Orwellian than that. And at the same time, they dare to talk about brotherly nations and, and, and just the mental gymnastics that the Russian propaganda has to take Uh, it's unfathomable, really. That makes a lot of sense. Um, Your experience has definitely been something that is harrowing and something that is, that I can't imagine, like, I I can't imagine myself or 
or any other person just trying to go through it's it's definitely like something i can't describe like myself going through so I guess like one of the next questions I did want to ask was that I see I saw that you recently published an anthology of poems, if I recall correctly, would or just like I think a recent work of text. Would you be willing to describe what that's about? Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Uh, that that is a great question. Actually, this anthology, which is called the Valley of Dry Bones, Valley of Dry Bones, it is exactly about that experience and it has poems about the ukrainian revolution of dignity it has one of the main poems in it is actually about the experience of war and about what can come after and how we might be able to endure and i pretty much finished uh the poetry part of it but i haven't published the book in its entirety yet because i'm still working on the artwork and mainly actually on the translations um so i'm trying to publish this as a bilingual book primarily as an english and ukrainian but one of the poems that is very particularly about the the war it's kind of a little bit more of a long form poem it i wanted to be translated in every language that i can possibly translate it in because one of the things that has been most important for ukrainians right now is letting the world know what's happening and so i'm trying to get this this poem already has been translated into french um um I'm working on translating it. Uh, it uh, so it's already we got a English, Ukrainian, and French translation. I'm trying to uh, get my friends uh, and uh, my lover uh, to translate it into Spanish. And then one of uh, one of my great friends, I hope, will be able to translate it into um, Yiddish. Very, very hopefully. Actually, this friend of mine is um, is teaching right now Ukrainian history at UIC. So I highly recommend to check out that course if you have any time. Well, uh, just people who are listening to this podcast and who are students there are always welcome uh, to find out more about Ukraine. I will definitely like try to look into it. One of the other few questions that I did have was that as someone who is also from an immigrant family, I know how hard it can be for someone to move to a whole to a completely different country. Just in general, like what has your experience been like in Chicago and have you noticed that there is a large diaspora community of Ukrainians and Ukrainian Americans in Chicago and if so, like um is the community um receptive? towards new immigrants and just in general yeah how's your experience been in chicago yeah you know it, it has been a very peculiar one um from the very beginning i so i came to chicago primarily for uh educational opportunities but i did not account for the fact of how unbelievably expensive education is here actually because in ukraine you can very easily afford education uh i thought that you know i could transfer 
here in a pretty easy manner. Like, I did not have any encounters with American bureaucracy at that time. I just had a chance, and I took it, of coming here. And for the first three years, I pretty much just had to work terrible jobs and save up money to go to college and restart my whole education from scratch. Chicago is, um, I think in many ways, the best possible city that an immigrant could come to. It has exactly enough opportunities so that no matter where you're from, you can actually gain access eventually to some sort of meaning, to some form of education and meaningful employment. Uh, and the capabilities that you have here are really beautiful, especially in terms of the art world. However, that is also true about New York and LA and Seattle, and many other places. But, and this is a thing that I think many people don't realize, one of the most important things about Chicago is, of course, the fact that there is gang culture here. And there is quite a bit of crime. At least there's a perception that there's a lot of crime. I think it's overstated in the media and a little bit over-exaggerated of what's actually happening here. People call it Chirac and so on and so forth. I don't think it's nearly that bad, but I'm happy that people have that perception because at the very least, until recently, the rent has been quite affordable here, right? So if you compare uh, Chicago to any larger city, one of the things that actually keeps um, it uh, more affordable is the crime. So I, I'm really thankful uh, to anybody, you know, who's, uh, I, I, I mean, it's, it's kind of a bizarre thing to say, I guess, uh, but it, it is true. And um, I do think that I would love if Chicago would be safer. I really love that. But at the same time, it is very important that it is an affordable city because that is what enables people to live here, enables many people that have lived here for generations to keep on living here. Although, unfortunately, we are experiencing gentrification and other terrible urban conflicts. And uh, there's, um, there's, there's also a lot of people here that are uh, fresh off the boat immigrants from all across the world. Recently, there have been more and more Ukrainians, of course, but there's also an enormous amount of immigrants from all places around the globe. I have met people here from <laughs> literally every continent, every place imaginable. I've In my first year in Chicago, I've been living among an Ethiopian community, actually, uh, and people don't realize this, but the area um, of Edgewater, which is actually by Rogers Park, it's really rich in Ethiopian culture and Ethiopian people because they, they a lot of them migrate there, and it's a beautiful space. I've been, it's been an, uh, an extraordinary time living there and experiencing Ethiopian culture, of course. And then I've lived in Little Village, and there's, of course, an enormous amount of Mexicans there, and the person who uh, I'm, I'm actually dating right now is uh, from Little Village, and... Also, uh, I've lived in Humboldt Park, and that's, uh, you know, very rich in Puerto Rican culture. And also, I've, I've met quite a few people, actually, from all across Latin America there, including Cuba. 
So I, I, I think that it is wonderful, absolutely delightful that immigrants from all across the globe can come here and try and find a way to coexist with people that have been living here for generations. At the same time, Chicago is also a fantastic place for the artists that come here, also all across America, all across the, the globe, because you have this formation of a culture that is extremely similar to one of my most favorite periods of American artistic life, and that would be uh, the age of the beatniks, uh, you know, the age of Kerouac and, and Ginsburg, and, you know, it, most of that was happening actually in, uh, in New York, uh, of course, but now I feel that Chicago has such a similar culture to that, specifically because it is, you know, a metropolitan area that is very much so used to be at least affordable and still in some regards is. So yeah, I, I really do love Chicago and uh, the culture here is something that I resonate with deeply. The Ukrainian community here is also absolutely wonderful. There's people that have been living here for, of course, generations. I mean, Ukrainian village goes back way beyond a century here, and it is a marvelous area. I do think that right now there is a very interesting process of the integration of contemporary Ukrainian culture with the culture of the American Ukrainian diaspora, because the revolution and the war have been these radical events that many in the diaspora have experienced in their own way, indirectly. And now that there's people that actually come and are able to talk about that and are able to talk about these great changes, that also changes Ukrainian culture worldwide, of course. So, uh, yeah. My experience in Chicago has been a rather uh, peculiar, but absolutely wonderful and beautiful one from what um, from the last couple of years. Absolutely. I guess we're starting to close off on the end of the episode, but it was definitely a very interesting experience to hear you talk about your own life story. And it, I understand it was like very difficult to talk about. And I, I just want to thank you for sharing that experience with all of us, because I know if I was in your shoes, I definitely could not talk about it. So I definitely appreciate you just like coming on here and talking about that. Do you have any sort of closing remarks for our audience to know? I think it is absolutely vital right now that if anybody listening is interested in what's happening in Ukraine right now, um, I think the whole Ukrainian community would really appreciate if people would learn a little bit more about the Ukrainian experience of colonialism and what we're going through right now, because I, I think it's really vital for people to stay informed. Of course, there's many other countries in the world that are experiencing war. There's other peoples on this planet who are experiencing genocide, but I, uh, I happen to be Ukrainian and I would really want, you know, for it to end everywhere. But I, I happen to know quite a bit about the condition right now in Ukraine. And 
I think it is absolutely horrific. And I would just really appreciate if if people would try and reach out and learn a little bit more about what's happening and learn about Ukrainian culture. Because in in my feeling of it, it is absolutely terrifying every day to understand that there is an enormous risk that it's devastating what is happening. And I don't want to really even bring up the worst that can happen, but I would really appreciate if among other things and among other things that people are learning and among other causes that people are fighting righteously for, I would really appreciate if people would reach out and try to learn more about the culture of Ukrainian people and what is happening there right now. Thank you, Andre, for coming on to the podcast. We really do appreciate it. And we hope that everyone will check out Andre's new anthology of poems. When will that be available? And where will that be available? Yeah, so I'm going to be making a little bit of a um, book tour with it, I guess, uh, around Chicago area and maybe in some other cities if I will have the ability to. I don't know yet. But certainly there are a few places where you will be able to get it in Chicago. Uh, the primary one around around uh, March or, uh, or April, it will be Books for Cause. That's where I have posted my last uh, sort of little book presentation a few years ago. And that's where I'm going to host another one now and this year so i really recommend checking that place overall it is absolutely fantastic uh, and i will also try to get my books to a few more places perhaps some bookshops uh, around pilsen lincoln square other sort of culturally important areas of chicago uh so yeah but books for cause around march or april uh for sure Okay. And just in general, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. And we hope everyone will check out Andre's anthology of poems. Thank you so much. That was Andre talking about his experience as a Ukrainian and an author in Chicago. If you liked this episode, be sure to like, subscribe, rate, and review us in the comments below. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email us at seekingrefugepodcast at gmail.com or at our University of South Carolina email address, sosrpa at mailbox.sc.edu. You can find us on social media at Refuge Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. This show is produced by undergraduate students at the University of South Carolina. Your host for this week was Rohit Swain. This episode was edited by Diana Clark and produced by Isha Hegde. Our executive producers are Jackie Burnett and Isha Hegde. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next one.